0: Welcome back to Psychedelic Therapy Frontiers, the podcast devoted to exploring the frontiers of psychedelic medicine and what it takes to cultivate a healthy mind, body, and spirit. As always, Psychedelic Therapy Frontiers is brought to you by Numinous. I'm Dr. Steve Thayer, and today my co-host, Dr. Reed Robison, and I discuss the importance and challenges of focusing in a world filled with potent stimuli competing for your attention. We discuss techniques for maintaining focus, challenges specific to ADHD, mindfulness meditation, productivity and prioritization strategies, long-term focus relative to core values, and much, much more. A couple of announcements for you before we get into the episode. If you're looking for professional training pursuant to becoming a psychedelic-assisted practitioner, you can check out the courses we offer here at Numinous. Click on the link in the show notes or go directly to Numinous.com forward slash training, You can use the code PTF10 for 10% off selected trainings. If you've been listening to the show for a while, you've heard Reed and I talk a lot about the psychedelic clinical trial work that we do here at Numinous. If you or someone you know might be interested in being a participant in a psychedelic clinical trial, you can click on the link in the show notes or go directly to Numinous.com forward slash research to learn more about the trials we're currently running. Finally, if you'd like to support the show, you can do so by leaving us a rating or review in places like Apple Podcasts or Spotify. I got to say, I read all those reviews. Um, you're able to re- leave a written review, especially in the Apple Podcasts uh, review section. And some of you have written very heartfelt, detailed reviews about how listening to the show has helped you, what you've learned. And that means everything to me and Reed. We do this show because we want to provide free and uplifting educational information. And so when we hear that it is beneficial to you, our listeners, it just means so much. So thank you for leaving those reviews. Without further ado, here's our episode today on attention and focus. We are back with another episode of Psychedelic Therapy Frontiers. For those of you watching on YouTube, you'll notice maybe a new setting. We're not in the office we usually record in. How exciting.
1: How exciting. (laughs) Pretty blinds behind you. Yeah, new new room, new energy.
0: Yeah, how are you doing, Steve? I'm doing well. Doing well. Uh, We're recording this on a Friday, so I'm looking forward to my weekend. in time and space, this is the Super Bowl weekend. So I'm gonna be even though I'm not a huge football fan, I will be watching the Super Bowl. Um, just in case Travis Kelsey proposes to
1: Taylor Swift. Yeah. Oh, yeah. <laughs> that too.
0: They actually I was talking to our producer, Jamie, about this. They the Kelsey brothers, Travis and Jason Kelsey, both professional football players, actually have a really entertaining podcast. They're they're fun guys. Cool. I think it's called New Heights. So let's have them on. Yeah. <laughs> Wouldn't that be cool? Hey, uh, do you want to come on Psychedelic Therapy Frontiers? Who knows, though? I mean, a lot of football players are diving down the psychedelic rabbit hole, not the least of which is Aaron Rodgers. But Maybe
1: they're listening. Who
0: knows? Yeah, who knows? <laughs> we'll get the
1: occasional celebrity shout-out and we're like,
0: wait, what? Yeah. yeah. That always, That's always fun. Somebody reaches out on yeah. Instagram like, oh, I've seen your movies. Hopefully we are delivering <laughs> useful content. Um, today I think we have the potential to give some really helpful information on something that affects all of us. And that is our ability to make, sustain, focused attention. We have the potential, but will we? Will we deliver? That is up to you folks. So let us know if we deliver. We joked around earlier before hitting record, that this will be an unfocused episode on focus, just because Reid and I have a lot of things rattling around in our brain relative to this topic. Um, And it comes up in uh, my work with my clients often. And this is a never-ending journey for me as well. As somebody who has diverse interests and varied goals, mm-hmm. how do I prioritize my time? Um, in what direction do I point the arrow of my life? Um, how do I sort of get the most out of the things that mean the most to me? And being able to focus, especially in our modern day and age where, you know, uh, we have some of the more convenience probably than ever um, for human beings. But if we feel busier, we feel pressed for time, business becomes a weird especially in sort of corporate America, a weird badge of, of honor. Like, yeah. How are
1: you doing? Oh, busy, man. So busy. And it's like, yeah. oh yeah, good for you. You're busy. Like implied high five. Yeah, me too. Right. <laughs> yeah. And it's like a multitasking culture, which mm-hmm. is in many ways, an antidote to creativity and deep work. A, not antidote, but a multitasking. Yeah. Because, oh, I mean, sorry antithetical perhaps yes yes <laughs> glad you caught that we almost spread I was, misinformation <laughs> i was focusing
0: i was paying yeah. attention
1: and and thank you because that does it's a strange thing that uh strange little trigger mm-hmm. that when i hear people not a trigger but when i hear like a podcast or interviewer talk and someone uses the wrong word and they don't know and they mm-hmm. just carry on i was mm-hmm. like oh sad i have that same I've reaction that. and when i've listened to our episodes we've
0: totally done that oh yeah and i'm always like <laughs> oh no I'm such a hypocrite. Loose sleep and all that. Yeah. Yeah. I get sad for a long time. Uh, Long time. (laughs)
1: Very long. (laughs) Super sad for super long time. Yeah. Well, so we're talking about, what are we we talking about? (laughs) Paying attention? Um, Attention. Uh, I I read something once that struck me. Let me know what you think of this concept. Mm. Attention is the currency of love. Currency of love. I like
0: that. It's cool, huh? I like that when thinking about my own loving relationships and yeah. off, also when thinking about like, what's the value of what I do professionally as a therapist. One of the things I think is um, my focused attention on my clients. Like
1: when I've got somebody sitting on my big fancy couch, that Steve holds damn good space. He loves <laughs> me so much. Yeah, <laughs> that's true. And yeah. I do care, right? Yeah. I,
0: I wouldn't be there. I wouldn't be focusing if I didn't care. It's a little, I mean, it can feel a little weird and contrived cause you're paying me to do it. But, um, there's value in that because uh, it allows for me to be 100% focused on you. And that feels really, really good because we don't get that from a lot of people in our life. And we, you know, we talk about um, parenting a lot because we're both parents and you know, we've all been children of parents. And uh, one of the biggest gifts, the greatest gifts you can give a child is your
1: full presence. Your undivided attention. Yeah. Yeah. And you hear that in all these anecdotes. I can't even remember the last time it was like a day or two ago, I heard someone talking about a story where their kid came in and they were on their phone and, and the kid was sharing something. They didn't look up. And then before they knew it, the kid was gone. Mm -hmm. Um, and that was a shot to the heart. And I think we can all relate. Right. And when I read that statement, uh, the first thing I thought about was, well, kids parenting, just like you said, and in, um, any kind of intimate partnership, close relationship, um, the same applies. Like, I think there's a lot of like truth to that statement mm-hmm. uh, and a useful one, uh, if we take it and bring more of our undivided whole self to those moments with others we care about. Yeah. Yeah so as
0: I'm thinking about it being the currency of love, you know, when we are really paying attention to somebody, we're showing them a variety of things and one of is that they really matter to us. Like what you are saying to me really matters. Matters more than the distractions, right. more than the just the notification I just got on my phone. Yeah. It's kind of funny I was I just finished reading this book by Celeste Heedley. Do Nothing, How to Break Away from Overworking, Overdoing, and Underliving. How apropos. Super cool book. And one of the things she talks about is just sort of the irony that um, this relationship that most of us have with our phones is such that I could be having a conversation with you, but if I get a text, all of a sudden the text is the priority. Like I'm going to I'm gonna break out contact with you and check my text message. A message from somebody who's not in the room with me right now you know, who's sending a message in the ether. And I think she said something like the average person responds to a text message within 60 seconds or something like that. Hmm. Uh, email too can, uh, can be that way. Just ripping our attention out of the present moment.
1: Yeah. And there, there are a lot of uh, things we could list that are problematic with yeah. that, right? Not just getting pulled away, um, by what you care about, what you value or letting yourself do that. But, but interrupting, um, whatever you're doing has its consequences too. And the message it sends to the other Mm -hmm. and the list goes on. Yeah. 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 The interruption
0: part. I mean, if you've ever read any book on productivity or any book on focus and attention, you've probably learned that, um, there's a startup cost to engaging in deep work. And every time you are, your attention is fractured or ripped away from the thing you have to rev that engine up again have to heal your fracture heal that fracture <laughs> yeah you mentioned multitasking earlier it's you know this idea that we can do more than one thing at once is actually a myth and when they study multitasking um they that what what they discover is that we're not actually doing more than one thing at once we're just task switching we're single tasking and then switching back and forth we're doing each lot.
1: thing less well less well and yeah Yeah. And sometimes we need to, I mean, it's important to give a a disclaimer that these aren't totally black and white concepts and there Mm -hmm. is a time and place for both multitasking and um, urgently responding to a text, Mm -hmm. of course. Mm -hmm. Um, But, uh, but yeah, it's important to have some awareness. I think that's the, Mm -hmm. the big picture here. Awareness of how we're wired as humans and the forces at play in our society, especially these days, uh, tugging at our attention and what what the potential cost is there. Yeah. So speaking of those forces at play, I just um,
0: quickly Googled how often does the average American check their phone?
1: You did it quickly. Did a quick Google as I
0: was multitasking. Um, the average smartphone owner will unlock their phone at least 150 times a day.
1: Should we look at our phone settings and see what ours see is See what screen time do is. the reveal i have no idea <laughs> i don't know but. if i even can
0: <laughs> um but yeah and they'll check their phone once every 10 to 12 minutes i would say that for a lot of i mean this might be the average but for a lot of people they're checking their phone constantly
1: when i've uh when i've quickly googled those stats too now or you see them in a lot of articles yeah. uh, it's a big deal these days with uh um, in the literature and mental health of especially young people. Mm-hmm. Um, but, but yeah, I think the younger generation, it's quite a bit higher than those mm-hmm. averages. I would guess. Know. Yeah. And so what's the cost, you know, what's the cost of
0: having our attention yanked out of the present moment, out of what's in front of us, even if we're not, let's say we're not trying to do a particular task, but what's the cost of this fractured attention?
1: Well, one thing we were kind of alluding to is that you're no longer cap captaining your own ship mm. like um, say you spend 2 hours a day let's just do a little mathematics mm. 2 hours a day um infinitely scrolling uh, your favorite social media platform um TikTok Instagram they're particularly good at at that like mm-hmm. you could many people could spend hours doing that right i think we all get it 2 hours a day every day is 700 and some odd hours per year. Let's say 50 years go by um, times those 730 hours, 36,500 hours, 4.1 years. You've um, invested Mm. in um, getting pulled away into things that you weren't intending to. I like the way you said that because invested
0: and intending. If, If you decide that, the way you wind down at the end of a stressful day is to scroll TikTok, and that's very deliberate. Then that's your leisure time. I mean, it's really important to have leisure time. Um, it's when it's sort of robbing you and capturing your attention. You know, yeah. you mentioned sort of the, the smartphone technologies and these the algorithms on these platforms. I mean they there has been billions of dollars and some of the smartest behavioral scientists in the world dedicated to making these things. Uh, Addictive, right? Capture human attention. They're they're designed like slot machines because we know that interval reinforcement is the best way to capture and keep attention. And you hear things like attention is the new oil. That uh, the data that they gather gather from our attention is the most profitable resource in a modern technological economy. Yep. So there there are huge forces at play. You also referred to the way human beings are wired. So uh, I mentioned Tristan Harris on the podcast a couple of times because he's uh, the Center for Humane Technology. He's the one that that sort of is um, raising the flag about the dangers of these kinds of things. Mm -hmm. And he calls it the race to the bottom of the brainstem. You know, this is like subcortical hijacking. And so you can, you know, sort of take a breath, wake up blurry-eyed and realize, oh my gosh, I just spent two hours doom scrolling on reddit or you know mindlessly scrolling on tiktok it's not what i intended to do mm-hmm. so you can imagine you can imagine the cost of such a thing
1: yeah and a couple things come to mind another disclaimer perhaps uh i just want to be extra careful not to phone shame if oh. that's a thing and even phone shame myself cuz um some people's jobs as an example, might require that they look at their phone 150 times throughout the day. Right. Or we are in a society that is um, where a lot of our work happens on these devices, and that's a choice. And also brings with it um, some conveniences too. Mm-hmm. Like um, maybe there are some big advantages you get by being able to do that versus sitting in a cubicle every uh, every waking work hour, for right. example, um, so it, it is a part of our society. there are some beautiful benefits potentially, so there's that, and then it's also like we've been saying, just to reiterate the um, it's about Awareness. It's Mm. about shining a light on this and then coming up with some tools, tricks, strategies, or just an intention around how we want to be, how we want to show up in this world. And because people do get caught up in the, um, in the idea that all corporations are evil and they're trying to hijack my brain. Mm. Of course they are Mm -hmm. like a a corporation. They're not, not of course they're evil. (laughs) Of course (laughs) they're evil. (laughs) But of course, um, you know, you start an app company and your investors measure you by engagement, mm-hmm. like how many minutes per day the user spend on your platform. And that turns into currency for the business that helps it be sustainable. Right. They can sell more ads and more minutes you're on there. Um, and it's like the guy who invented, I was reading, I think it was in a book by Yari, whatever his last name is on, on, uh, um, focus. Mm-hmm. And he was talking about the guy who, invented infinite scroll, like Ari Raskin or someone. And, uh, and it, uh, it, it took the websites and especially the social platforms from where you'd have to click next or whatever to, um, where it just keeps providing you content. And, and he estimated that it um, increased engagement or time people would spend on that thing by 50%. Mm. But after he did and after it got out there and after he saw his own behavior, he regretted it. I heard that. He was, it was like a physicist who'd invented the technology for an atomic bomb or something. Like, oh no, what have I done? Right. Um, but that's like that's how progress and civilization works, especially in capitalistic societies. We need to just be aware of... Yeah, these apps are there for our liking for our choosing and they are leveraging these neuromarketing tactics and this increased understanding of behavioral neuroscience and all that good stuff. Um and so we we need to uh you know shore up our own um checks and balances and um make sure we're aware of these forces at play. That's that's it. <laughs> yeah.
0: I'm glad you brought it up. Um I also think along those same lines about, you know, not phone shaming, I think it's important to understand what you just described because we can get really hard on ourselves for not being focused enough, not being disciplined enough, not being productive enough. And there are cultural influences certainly at play on, you know, how productive one should be. And Celeste in her book talks a lot about that, actually, that maybe we need to return to the way our brains evolved and the way society existed for hundreds of thousands of years Meaning more leisure time, right? Um, less obsession with, with production and sort of this industrial revolutionally le- influenced perspective on what brings value to a person's life. All that is to say, you know, if you find yourself with fractured attention, if you find it hard for you to sort of execute and accomplish welcome. your goals, <laughs> welcome to yeah. the yeah, to the family, um, and understand that there are a lot of some there are lots of pressures on you outside of your control. So I just don't want to imply that it's an entirely an inside job that, you know, if only you were able to use the tools and tips and strategies that Reed and Steve are going to share with you today, um, then you wouldn't have any problems. Mm -hmm. Uh, That's just not the case. You're going to have, you're going to have struggles. You're going to have problems because some of these forces at play are, uh, I don't want to say insurmountable, but they are significant.
1: Yeah. So your attention is a, currency of love and it's also a superpower in this especially in this society so you can actually grab your life your moments grab grab them by the reins and and aim in the direction you want to go and stick to what is important to you yeah so other things about attention
0: where do we want to take the conversation now because we can talk about tips and tricks and
1: maybe defining it first of all Mm. like um it may seem self-evident but but uh, just to get on the same page is attention is how we perceive the sensory world right so among all the stimuli that we currently receive and there are many going on every second mm-hmm. and we don't perceive them all so the ones that we're paying attention to are our perceptions and so in this increasingly distracted world and with stimuli everywhere um Attention is what we're, what we're picking up on. Mm -hmm. So in this, like you said, our our sensory organs are
0: capturing a lot of data and the data that we maybe are aware of, or that are conscious of are the ones we're paying attention to. Is that a way of saying it?
1: Yeah. And, um, one reason I want to just get to the basic definition is because it's intriguing to me that there's so much overlap in both, um, this, focus and attention realm in terms of like self-improvement and of course the ADHD world that we can talk about, but, uh, the mindfulness world, Mm -hmm. uh, this mindfulness meditation, training, brain training, um, that is becoming such a big part of society. Mm -hmm. Um, Mm -hmm. I think in response to our distracted world, but also, um, spiritual practices really, um, really get into it as well, which mm-hmm. I find fascinating. Like yoga, for example. Remember um, when I first was diving deep on on yoga training and was presented with this book of the Yoga Sutras, a couple thousand year old book written by this this fella Patanjali. These little sutra meaning stitch stitch of wisdom and and uh, one of the very first few sutras um, defines what yoga is. And I think I'll try my Sanskrit. It's like yoga, chitta, vritti, Mm naroda. Yoga, and uh, you can, like Sanskrit um, is fun that way. You can define it in a lot of different ways. Yoga is the settling of the mind into silence. Yoga is the cessation of the mind stuff. Yoga is mind control. Like Mm -hmm. These are all definitions I've I've heard from yoga teachers, Mm -hmm. uh, even talking about it from a spiritual lens. But it sounds uh, very relevant to what we're talking about, yeah. And and it begs the question of of why? Why is it important to your spiritual path too?
0: Why, Reed? <laughs> <laughs> why is it important to your spiritual path?
1: Well, um, one one way to start to get at that answer, and I'll give the disclaimer that I don't know. I'm still yeah. trying to figure it out. But uh, there's this concept of of one pointed awareness um, that really ties into your spiritual path and your ability to um, get into deep meditative states and your ability to really um, be present with your life, your spirituality, commune with the divine in whatever way is possible. Um, And so the, the path, this whole yoga path, just as one example we're looking at, the body postures are there to help you train the body to be able to sit still long enough to get into that meditative state that deep state of what they call samadhi or um, pure unbounded awareness but you have to go through these passages of train the body train the mind train the breath um, and then you can you can get there more readily and to give a psychedelic example i was sitting in a an ayahuasca a retreat ceremony once upon a time with a bunch of uh, um, part of the group was uh, um, combat veterans, mm-hmm. um, Navy SEALs, and they, um, they had their own kind of special abilities, obviously, but they also had really tight hips and a difficult ability to sit still in like a cross legged position for long periods of time. Yeah. And it was visible in, in the times of kind of preparation, debriefing, integration, circles, things like that. Um, they were squirming like mad and, uh, you know, had to get up and I could just almost see how distracting it was and Mm. can relate, like, think about what might pull you out of the moment. And those are some of the things. Yeah. So
0: this is making me think of, you mentioned mindfulness, um, and meditation as not only a, technique or a technology or a strategy for practicing attention, like training attention, mm-hmm. but also like you've talked about so many times on the podcast, a, 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 a spiritual, what would you call it? Practice. Practice.
1: Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, a state of consciousness. Mm-hmm.
0: And I was doing some meditation this morning and uh, it was a guided meditation and the guide had us just start by closing our eyes and becoming aware of our body in space, the shape of of our body and then just allow all the sensations to arise in consciousness and then to, you know, disappear. And then he asks questions like, where did it go? He's mm-hmm. trying to get, get you to this sort of realization of, you know, consciousness is this it's infinite expanse or... It was, it was. <laughs> I guessed it. Yeah, yeah. I like, I like the waking up app. Um, but then he says, uh, no, just bring, you know, bring your attention to the sensation of breathing and it wasn't to control the breath. It was just to notice the breath. And I find my mind, you know, like many of us when we're doing these meditations, wanders all over the place. And the exercise is not to remain focused on the anchor point. It's to notice when your mind isn't there and then bring it back. Almost like if you were trying to get big biceps, the exercise is not to hold the dumbbell at the top of the lift. It's actually to move it through its range of motion. Um, And so, yeah, I mean, I find my mind very, very distracted. Um, and it's, it's so educational, not only to notice like, holy cow, is this what my mind does all day, every day, just thoughts coming up out of nowhere. And then some of them are really sticky and all of a sudden they affect my mood or they affect my behavior. What if I got really good at noticing mind minding, like doing the mind thing? Yeah. Um, that could be incredibly useful. It It helps. It would help me be more volitional in my day to direct the arrow of my attention to the things that really matter.
1: The arrow of, of your attention. I like that. Um, as you're speaking, it's, uh, I can't help but notice my mind wandering to a Thich Nhat Hanh quote. Mm-hmm. <laughs> that, um, I'm paraphrasing a bit because I, I like my paraphrasing version, but mm-hmm. he, he said something like, um, thoughts and feelings come and go, but conscious breathing is my anchor. Mm. And uh, I really like that of just remembering that we do have ways of returning gentle easy accessible ways not easy necessarily but uh uh there are these ways of coming back to the here and now even through something as simple as our breathing that's going on all the time mm-hmm. and uh one other quote that's either Thich Nhat han or the buddha himself or some other great thinker uh, it's in the sunlight of awareness everything becomes sacred hmm. and that kind of helps get at that spiritual path question a little bit, because if you are fully present, um, in the here and now, and you have that capital A awareness on the moment, um, yeah, I would say that could be a sacred moment. Um, and then one other potential, um, way to answer it is, uh, I've, I think I've mentioned this equation before, but, uh, But mindfulness or analogy, it's from Shinzen Young, a meditation teacher who I talked about on a recent episode. Um, This analogy of a three-legged stool, Mm -hmm. like mindfulness as a a path, as a practice, as a state of consciousness, uh, has these three components. Uh, Attention being one, sensory clarity, like you're talking about, Mm -hmm. like really tuning in, seeing what's going on in your mind and your body, your emotions, and then the third, leg of the stool, and which is also necessary for this balanced, um, this balanced mindfulness is equanimity Mm. that I think is, is especially relevant in the spiritual path. Part of it is, um, you train through meditation, mindfulness practices, train your attention, you tune your senses to be more clear And you're going to need some equanimity to be able to hold all that once you're tuned in and focusing on it or else it's overwhelming. Right. Yeah.
0: Yeah. Tell me if I'm getting this wrong, but sometimes when I think of equanimity, I think of um, Ulysses being tied to the mast. So, you know, the, the great epic story and Ulysses or Odysseus, I think it goes by both names, sailing past the Island of the Sirens and he wants to hear the song. I'm sure some of you know this story better than I do. I, mm-hmm. I, I remember this from high school, so forgive me if I get nice the details job. wrong. But um, and so he has his crew fill their ears with wax or something so that they can't hear the song. But he wants to hear it, so they have he has them tie him to the mast, so that and and say don't listen to anything I say because you know the siren song is intoxicating and it causes sailors to crash on the rocks and then the sirens eat them or whatever. Um, so equanimity is kind of like a, maybe a, a way to tie oneself to your own mast so that you can experience all that experience has to offer, but not be tugged or pushed too far in any one direction.
1: Yeah, that's, uh, that's really interesting. Um, when you first said tie to the mast, I was just thinking of blowing in the wind, mm-hmm. like a willow tree or something that I, I've thought of as equanimity before the ability to kind of. Blow with the wind to bend and not break, mm. um, but that uh, tying yourself to a pole is a really <laughs> maybe too Interesting I don't know. spin, <laughs> especially when you say tie yourself to a pole. Tie yourself to a <laughs> pole. Yeah. no, I, I I like it, and um, and I think it for me for whatever reason it brings up the question of like can you hold it all? Can you mm. hear the siren's song and not jump off the boat or right. whatever? Right. Yeah.
0: Yeah. Um, Or return to the boat if you are halfway to the island and you're like, oh, what am I doing? (laughs) Come back to the boat, come back to center, come back to that conscious breath,
1: perhaps. Yeah. Yeah. So, anyway, that's this is all background Mm -hmm. uh, preamble for this idea of, you know, how to focus in today's world. Yeah. Do you want to go down the ADHD rabbit trail for a second? Yeah. Let's do it. Cause I like, I like to, uh, point out that, well, it's my opinion that ADHD is a bit of a misnomer Mm. because it's attention is just one part of it. Like alternate names uh, that would also capture big significant parts of it would be like intention deficit disorder Mm. or time blindness or executive functioning disorder. Mm -hmm. But um, I think executive functioning with all its domains is – is uh, something that captures more of it. But I mean, we do, we do call it ADHD and that's fine, but, but it's not, I want to just point out that it's not all about attention. Um, and it's really, I've, I've had a fascination with ADHD since even before med school. Um, I may have told this story before, but, uh, when I was a teen, my one of my two younger brothers, the older one was in kindergarten doing a craft with like lentils, macaroni noodles or something. And, and told all his classmates, this cool idea he had of like blowing them in the air or something like that. And pretty soon there are all these things flying across the room and the teacher's crying. And, and he got sent to the office and to Dr. Law's office, the Mm. psychiatrist. Um, and, uh, I thought it was cool that Dr. Laws wanted our whole family to come in and, and we were sitting around this conference table having family therapy, which Mm -hmm. I thought was cool that he did that. Um, but it was, uh, it was formative as a teen to see him in action and, Mm -hmm. and obviously planted a seed of, of my interest in brain stuff and, and potential career paths. But, but, uh, so yeah, what, um, That's just a little, a little, uh, soapbox, two cents on the naming conventions of it. Yeah. Yeah.
0: Well, we've talked a lot about, um, even in a recent, maybe even the last episode about diagnostic labels and, um, so check out those episodes for a a longer conversation about that. But, uh, you know, that this, just because you've received the label, the diagnosis label of ADHD, it, it doesn't mean that, um, you are precisely like everybody else that has been given that label. It probably exists on a spectrum. And then there are people who maybe have been given that label inappropriately and and misdiagnosed, but because (laughs) it's, it's not just about attention. It's about so many things, rejection, sensitive dysphoria, emotional dysregulation. And there's a lot of things that overlap with other conditions too.
1: Yeah. Traditionally, um, especially when it was called, well, ADD and Wim, women, females, young girls would get missed in the diagnosis, um, a lot more in the past and still do because they're just more, they're less likely to have that hyperactivity component or, or that com, combined type. Like right. technically you can have ADHD has its, uh, qualifiers, right? Inattentive type, um, hyperactive type combined type. Mm-hmm. Um, but, uh, yeah, so, it might help to break down a bit executive functioning. Um, but one other analogy just for fun is, um, you could consider ADHD like a small malfunction in the bouncer department of the club Mm. and where you don't have someone there keeping the flow of people in check. So everyone's coming and going and it's a mess and it might even be fun. Um, but it's not really sustainable, people getting burnt out, um, supplies running low, uh-huh. all that good stuff. But, but uh, the executive functioning, just to, to attempt a bit of a concise definition, because there are like seven classic domains of it yeah. and lots we could dive into, but it's, it's essentially action to the self, like the use of self-directed action to choose our goals, if you will, and select, act on, and sustain our tasks in support of those goals. Mm. Yeah.
0: yeah, select, act on, and sustain. So it re- in order to do that, it requires the, the bouncer, right? It requires a filtering process where, yeah. you know, it's it's perhaps not that you can't pay attention. It's that you pay attention to too many different things and many of them extraneous and not relevant to what you actually want. So, um, if you have healthy executive functioning, you can filter out the things that aren't goal consistent or not consistent with what you're trying to accomplish, and you're not as likely to get pulled off track.
1: Yeah, and what what fascinates me about the condition, and um, I think we're all on a spectrum of this somewhere, right? Mm-hmm. And sure, there are there are distinct differences in like uh, a child who may be at high genetic risk. It may have siblings, parents, et cetera, with it and presents very differently than the, someone else on the other end of the spectrum, uh, on the extreme of no ADHD. Mm-hmm. But, um, but in today's Uber distracted world presents challenges that make make us all feel these, these deficits because, mm-hmm. you know, no one's perfect in their executive functioning. Right. Mm-hmm. Um, but, uh, what fascinates me about it is that this time blindness component or this inability to organize oneself in time in support of the goals that you may have had front and center in your brain one minute ago. Like you go to pick up your phone and we could probably all relate to go send someone an important message, but there's a notification that takes you to someone who liked your photo Mm -hmm. and Oh, their profile. And, Um, pretty soon you're shopping on Instacart or something like that. Yeah.
0: It's sort of this, uh, not so choose your own adventure, um, of distracting, distracting stimuli.
1: And therefore the interventions besides meds, which are, um, you know, we can get into if it makes sense, but the interventions for ADHD behaviorally and, um, are in time are Mm -hmm. re-engineering your environment with with some of the things we may be talking about, like, um, tools, tricks, hacks, reminders, rewards, consequences, et cetera. Yeah. yeah.
0: Yeah. They act as a scaffolding for what otherwise would be sort of a softly structured attention.
1: Yeah. Yeah. And so that's, uh, yeah, that's ADHD. And important to point out that it also, comes with its superpowers, mm-hmm. right? Like they're, um, you could call it like you could call many things, a, a curse or a blessing. Double-edged and, sword. Yeah. yeah. And there are a lot of great um, thinkers, entrepreneurs, uh, writers, creatives, and beyond who have changed the world in meaningful ways with uh, who had a uh, pretty significant ADHD, but it can come with like a cognitive dynamism, a mm. courage, a creativity. Um, yeah. Yeah. A resilience, uh, an energy mm-hmm. about it. Yeah. yeah.
0: And you know, it's, some people who think deeply about this diagnosis will push back a bit and say, for some folks, what we're calling a disorder is maybe just a mismatch between a, you know, phenotype, a cognitive phenotype and our society. It's, <laughs> yeah. it's a lot to ask a kid to sit through eight hours of school um, and maybe more for a kid who a few hundred years ago would have been really great as a hunter or a really great, yeah. uh, somebody or somebody who is a tinkerer or an inventor or somebody who works with their hands.
1: Now give the kid a fidget spinner, <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> sit still or <laughs>
0: give them, you know, an iPad yeah. that'll capture their attention.
1: So what's the answer is ADHD really dysfunctional or is our society dysfunctional? Oh, yikes.
0: <laughs> well, I think there's many things about our society that's dysfunctional. Um, but, uh, I'll dodge the question and instead say there are people who also um, make the claim that uh, ADHD has its roots in trauma.
1: Ooh, I have some things to say about that, yeah. but you go ahead. <laughs> well, We don't necessarily have Triggers. to go down that, that
0: rabbit trail, but you can't imagine how uh, deep trauma, especially early in childhood could affect executive function. It
1: can look like it. Yeah. That's the thing. But, but I, I have uh an internal reaction I notice when someone tries to say that all of the presentation of ADHD is really, um, like a response to trauma yeah. or, um, untreated trauma or something. But cause you know, I like to remember that multiple truths can coexist at the same time and, mm-hmm. and yeah, and we're not in a black and white world.
0: Yeah. There could be many roads that lead to Rome. Also we just got done talking about how, yeah. Uh, what we're calling ADHD might be more than one thing, right? It's like yeah. the autism spectrum. So you have all these different presentations that uh, fall into this, under this broad umbrella that we're calling ADHD. And so it, maybe there's a different kind of executive function deficit that can be attributed to trauma. And even though it looks similar, maybe it's not the same phenomenon as somebody yeah. with ADHD that's heavily genetically linked, for example.
1: The same could be said about so many mental health conditions, right? Mm-hmm. And that's what is both equally fascinating about what we do and e- extremely challenging. Yeah. Right. To tease out like normal bereavement mm. grieving versus like what's in the DSM five or like prolonged bereavement. Complicated. Uh, bereavement, yeah, yeah. And, uh, yeah. Life stressors or adjustment disorder. I mean, we talked about this before. I won't, mm. I won't, uh, um, follow the temptation to, f- <laughs> to, uh, go down that rabbit hole again. But, but yeah, it is, uh, um, you know, I want to acknowledge that yes, uh, ADHD can look like, like trauma, but I, I just want to be careful in the broad statements of, because I don't believe that it always is. Yeah. yeah.
0: Very few broads. How about this for a broad statement? Very few broad statements are completely
1: accurate. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you. Yeah. Um, for putting my system at ease, oh, Let, that's um, what I do. ADHD, interestingly, like, um, has like, if you're talking about classic ADHD and the brain imaging studies or, um, the other neuroscience studies, just starting to understand it. And this has been through the course of decades now is that there's lower dopamine at, re- at rest. Um, but the, the spikes in dopamine are more meaningful and sizable if you will and and one can spring into action perhaps even even more fully that's why there's this uh, genotype called the warrior genotype um, of COMT variant, like if you have two G's on this COMT gene, it's like a Val 158 met if I'm not butchering the old (laughs) uh, genetics, which I've I may be is, uh, you know, that's kind of the that uh, what it's describing is uh, a little lower baseline dopamine, and the rewards can be significant and really helpful initially, but you may need to keep them in your environment longer than you think Mm -hmm. because, um, they might, uh, they might be needed, um, because you might just be back at that baseline dopamine.
0: Yeah. So what this looks like, if any of you were like, I think I can relate to that might be somebody who gets really, really excited about a particular hobby or project, and they just go full steam ahead. And then until it becomes, kind of uninteresting or unrewarding and they're quick to drop it. So you mm. have sort of the stereotype of the person who has, um, bought all the stuff to do a particular hobby and started doing it and then quickly abandoned it and moved on to the next hobby. Uh, cause that, that dopamine reward system and doesn't, isn't self-sustaining maybe as, as thoroughly as it would be in a neurotypical brain.
1: Yeah. And I should point out that this, comt variant you could probably go check your 23 ME data or whatever and and find out your variant but um it's more common than the prevalence of adhd let's mm. just say that let's say so there are three possible variants you could have the warrior the warrior or a mix and um the worried warrior warrior <laughs> uh, yeah <laughs> That's yeah me and there was this one study it was actually in Taiwan that I think illustrates it really well but but say um a th- there's a third of the population in each It's not that, but some variants are you know it might be ten percent with two g's and um but uh there there are a fair there are a large number of people who have that variant um and a large number of those with the warrior genotype and that if you have the warrior genotype. You're you have an easier time in school in general. Like this Taiwanese study looked at uh, 800 students in school taking tests and their COMT genotype status. This is just one of many genes, by the way. This Mm -hmm. isn't like the ADHD answer by any means. I'm just it's an illustration. But um, those with the warrior genotype had better grades on tests because they had this higher baseline dopamine, a little bit higher that helps you sustain your attention during those everyday tasks and get good grades and do a test. But in a high pressure environment, like when uh, um, there's some simulated stress or, or something else uh, those with the warrior genotype who could spring into uh, even more of a peak dopamine action hmm. had an advantage. Interesting. Yeah. And it does get back to that, uh, Question of dysfunctional society, yes or no? And, you know, like you pointed out, both can be true. And yes, our society is dysfunctional in many ways. And yes, we are evolutionarily wired uh, uniquely, um, even with individual differences. You might have a different genotype in that area than I do. Mm-hmm. Who knows? We should check. Yeah, but, let's check after. But, uh, but yeah, that uh, it's not that you need to go genotype yourself, but it's another kind of little example of the value of knowing yourself.
0: Yeah. Yeah. I mean, people often come to us with the question, why am I the way I am? (laughs) Yeah. What we do is the, in some ways, the study of answers to that question. And the ultimate answer is we don't freaking know, but we have some ideas about maybe why we are the way we are. And it's multivariate and genes are just one of those things. I remember hearing a geneticist say that your genes uh, no, no, no. This is about parenting with respect to your child's genetic code. Mm-hmm. And he said, parenting matters, but it doesn't make a difference. Um, and this was him saying that t- really, the most of the variance for change in statistical models for a person's development over time is attributable to their genetic code. And we talk about the diathesis stress model. You might have, as you've said on the show before, nature loading the gun, but nurture pulling the trigger, blah, blah, blah. Uh, so genes matter, but they're only a, a piece of the puzzle.
1: Yeah. The, the genetic, the heritability estimate of ADHD is like, you know, there it's, there's a range from studies, but somewhere land, somewhere around 75% mm. around, not too far off from where height is. Mm. Um, but, um, and, and we are, it's interesting, like there's the evolutionary roots of how we're wired and then there's uh the evolution of society and those two tracks aren't um they're not going at the same pace yeah yeah <laughs> no. it's it's fascinating because you have these uh exponential like explosions and access to certain kinds of technology Mm -hmm. as an example, like we've been talking about or a society that requires you to sit still and maybe a trait that was an advantage a hundred years ago in, um, culture and society, uh, like ADHD, um, superpowers or some way might present a disadvantage if you're asked to sit in a chair Mm -hmm. and stare at a blackboard uh, for eight hours.
0: This is something I don't think a lot of
1: therapists
0: appreciate when they've got people suffering in front of them on their couches is how much of that suffering could be attributed to a mismatch between human evolution and uh, the evolution of societal zeitgeists, Mm -hmm. right? You just look at America in a like a, a capitalist economic environment since the industrial revolution that puts people in work environments for a lot of time in their lives. It might be for all the strengths of that particular culture and environment, it might be kind of not well suited to the way that our brains and our nervous systems evolved. And so mm-hmm. a lot of the anxiety and a lot of the sleeplessness and a lot of the depression might not might not be because a person has too many cognitive distortions it might uh, or it might be partly that, but
1: it might also be partly because of this mismatch. Because you feel like a fish out of water mm-hmm. and you're flapping around and panicking or, yeah. yeah, if we're diagnosing some humans with ADHD, let's diagnose society with something as well <laughs> and balance it out like, like pro-conformity disorder mm-hmm. or something mm-hmm. um, where, yeah, it's just expecting a one-size-fits-all response to how society's evolved at this moment in time, and how every kid is supposed to behave. Right. <laughs> yeah.
0: Yeah. So that mismatch might be part of the reason why we have such trouble focusing. Yeah. Anything else about ADHD before we move away from it?
1: Well, um, maybe m- just to touch on meds for a minute is just with a couple big-picture thoughts is. Mm-hmm. Um, because I think it's it's relevant, and people may have the question of, like, what is the role of Adderall in all this? Um, because there, we're coming out of an Adderall shortage, even, mm-hmm. and a, a real spike in the diagnoses of ADHD, especially coming out of COVID, and uh, people seeking treatment. But um, if you're going to treat kind of classic ADHD with a stimulant, it's one of the most rewarding things to treat compared to other and, uh, psych meds or mental health conditions, because the success rate is quite high, um, 80% or something mm-hmm. like that. Compare that to antidepressant response. It's, it's, uh, yeah, a lot more rewarding, mm-hmm. right? But, uh, but the way I view them, well, in, in general, like the, we know the chemical imbalance theory is a way too much of an oversimplification. Yeah, um, and uh, did you bring this up the other week of pouring a whole can of oil over your engine or something. Anyway, it's an analogy yeah, we've, we've used uh, of like, if it's as if you were going to get an oil change, you pop open your hood and you take a can of oil and just throw it on the whole engine. Mm. And you might get some in and you might have some other consequences like insomnia, irritability, whatever, um, loss of appetite and things like that. Um, so there's that to keep in mind mm. and also the dosing sweet spot. But even more importantly, I think uh, that there is, uh, at least in my opinion, a balanced view of of how meds can be helpful for a time in the right situation to help someone do the brain training they need to sustain these new ways Mm -hmm. of being over time. Yeah. Yeah.
0: That's how I've often thought about it. You know, the medicine experience gives somebody sort of that, like we talk about with psychedelics sometimes, that lived experience of being able to attend, like, oh, this is kind of what it feels like. And this is, I actually want to do my schoolwork when I have these medicines helping me. Um, It helps them get greater access to the the behavioral tools, tips, and strategies, and actually uh, get some habits
1: going. And so maybe
0: you don't have to be on Adderall your entire life, but it's a way shower.
1: Yeah. And maybe key. I, I want to also be careful not to accidentally introduce any shame to someone who True. might be on long-term stimulant and doing, uh, very well doing on well, it. Right. Yeah. Um, and that, uh, that's great, you know, and, and my statement is more around like the ways we could use them and, um, and whether it's 10 weeks or 10 years, um, for that training and, uh, keeping that in mind, taking breaks. I'm a big fan of med holidays, like Mm -hmm. with, and I've prescribed stimulants thousands of times since, you know, since I became licensed Mm -hmm. in, in this field and, uh, um, and, you know, almost every every prescription or new start of a prescription, like I try to have that conversation of, um, let's try and schedule in some times or introduce some times where your brain is still making its own dopamine. So it's not entirely used to just getting on a silver platter, uh, Mm -hmm. that, uh, um, might be what's, you might need it every day for a time and that's fine. Yeah. Yeah.
0: Well said, I think he was appropriate for us to talk about ADHD on an episode about focus and attention.
1: Yeah, yeah. Um, so, so, what to what to do about our attention? There <laughs>
0: you go. There you go. Um, we talked about meditation and mindfulness. It does a lot of things, but one of the things it does is help train attention. Um, when I think about attention and focus, I also think about prioritization. So, mm-hmm. you know, you can have a list of tasks, whether it's for your job or uh, to dos at home or whatever it is. And it can be hard to accomplish the, or to, to check off the lists on that, uh, or the tasks on that list. And a lot of people get stuck with analysis paralysis, right? And they end up doing nothing instead of doing something. So there's a ton that has been written about, you know, how to prioritize effectively. Some of the things I found most helpful for me and, and for some of my clients is to literally write the things down, right? If you're just sort of relying on your mind to Keep all these things active in working memory, then you're you're probably exhausting yourself unnecessarily. So, get them down on paper, and then you can rank order them. Uh, what's most important? And there's different questions you can filter that rank ordering through, or you can use to filter that rank ordering. Like, what if accomplished would make the other items on this task irrelevant? Yeah, or, I like that. What if accomplished would provide me the most emotional relief? Um, it's usually the one that's causing you the most resistance, by the way. So Mm -hmm. another way to ask that question is, which which thing am I resisting the most? And then just freaking attack
1: that thing. Attack. Uh,
0: There's also, people will say that there's no such thing as priorities, that uh, the priority is a singular, that you only have one thing that can be your priority. So focus Mm -hmm. on the one thing. In fact, there's a great book called The One Thing that talks about this. And then uh, if you get that one thing done, then the other things are just bonus.
1: Yeah, I like that. Have you ever done any bullet journaling? Yeah. Yeah, mm-hmm. it's fun. I like the the tactile, like doodling, kind of creative spin on it. But, but uh, and I'll uh, introduce parts of it now and then on my mm-hmm. three by five cards of my journal or whatever. But I like how, Their prioritization makes you like the recommended prioritization of like the bullet journal system and community is making a long list initially, but cramming it down. You actually stretch yourself, like list 10 priorities, then do another eight. Mm -hmm. Oh, now squeeze seven more out of you, get Mm -hmm. 25, and then whittle it down to 15, then keep going get it down to three. Mm-hmm. You're only allowed three. And then, um, there are your top priorities. And I love what you were sharing about ways of like looking at the resistance and, um, and looking at what's on the other side of knocking some of those things out too. Yeah. And then, yeah. And then you can break it down from there. Cause the way to eat an elephant, especially if you're prone to distraction is one bite at a time. Yeah. Yeah. And sometimes that's, that's the most useful approach
0: is okay. This thing that is at the top of my priority list is just is an elephant. It's too big to take care of all at once. And so that creates resistance. So I quit. Yeah. yeah. So instead, you just look at the minimum. It wouldn't be effective dose, but like the the what's this? How can I chunk this down into the smallest bite? It might literally be sit down in my chair. <laughs> like yeah. the first thing I need to do is open to my do, laptop. Sit in chair. Yes. Yeah, so, and if you want to get that granular, do it. It might actually work. It, it, yeah. help, it might escort you right through that resistance. I've sur- I've done this. Yeah. Certainly. It's the stuff that I really don't want to do, but I would love to have done. So like, okay. First thing first. Open the computer. All right, check. And I literally check it on my, my, my bullet journal or my list or whatever. Yeah.
1: I I had this, uh, this kind of ayahuasca ceremony experience just as an aside Mm -hmm. years ago that, um, I came out of it. One of the insights and I'm still trying to make sense of is love the resistance. Mm. Yeah. Which I think about that sometimes is like, Uh, in the spirit of triggers our friends to follow and the obstacle is the path. Like how can I love the resistance? But I think about a related concept, a lot of um, what might be called, what you might call urge surfing Mm -hmm. or just trigger work on your distractions. Um, where you see the things that pull you out and the things that you avoid. Um, and you just look at them, you get curious and, and you start to play with also the discomfort, like seek out the discomfort in a fun, like gamified way, if you can to, uh, ride the waves of those uncomfortable times when you have to actually like sit in the chair because you said you were going to, but you don't want to. Right.
0: Yeah. This is where mindful acceptance and equanimity become a superpower. Yeah.
1: Because it, that's,
0: you need those tools in order to urge surf.
1: And taking an inventory of, of what pulls us out and what we avoid repeatedly over time, I've just found so useful.
0: Yeah. Yeah. I mean that's what you're describing. Really, is the process by which you you um, discover the obstacle is the way. Yeah. And what you resist becomes um, your most important work, especially if you can look at it in this equanimous, mindful way. Yeah. So it shows you, like you've said before, shows you where the work is. Um, and if you can, like, why am I resisting? Uh, what would it feel like to have this thing done? And uh, that becomes sexier than just what would it feel like to avoid this thing, so I don't have to do it. You get enough reps under your belt of I felt so good to just finish this thing, yeah. and I don't want to feel the anxiety, the boredom, the nervousness. Like, there's a couple different ways I can address this. I can I don't know uh, take a substance. <laughs> I can <laughs> you know run away from it. I can you know distract myself, or I can lean in, you know, courageously and aggressively. And dissolve it that way. And then you not only get a resolution of the uncomfortable feelings, but you develop strength and a skill and you get the thing done. Mm -hmm. And if it's relevant to, you know, greater goals that you have, it's moving you toward a life of purpose. It's moving you toward accomplishing the things that make you feel good, that have an impact on the world. It's kind of a win-win.
1: Yeah. I like it. I like it. And in, in my experience and what I've seen in others and heard from so many others is like, in the end most of the those uh waves of urge you're scared of mm. um or scared to surf are actually less scary after you do them mm-hmm. and you know things the discomfort passes quicker than you would think um in many situations especially if you're driven by that higher purpose or value driven if you will yeah. and you know how we talk about sometimes on here like bringing that spirit of awareness to why might this substance be going into my body? Mm -hmm. Like having intention around taking a medicine, for example. You know, sometimes I think about anything in life um, and um, investments in time, even anything in life in that way of like, what is this for? What is the purpose, the benefit, or what's the motivation? What might I be doing by engaging in this? Um, and, uh, you know, sometimes mindless scrolling is the intention, you know, or, um, Netflix is just a nervous system unwinding you need. Yeah. Uh, Yeah. Like I was talking about at the beginning of the conversation, if, if that is what you decide,
0: like you're describing with intention, then that's wonderful. Yeah. Um, so doing it with intention.
1: That's one thing just in the last couple of weeks that I've noticed about myself is that, um, in the in the in the um, kind of laboratory environment of say a yoga mat, a, a sitting in meditation, or other moments of stillness, and I can kind of feel my nervous system that might be frazzled or overactive. In certain moments, I'm realizing that oh, I need to introduce more rest. Mm-hmm. And, you know, if I start to look at the day, wow, I was going, um, yeah. and so the intention may be more Netflix and chill mm-hmm. at times of your life. Right.
0: Yeah. I'm glad you brought that up because a lot of times we, we feel like, uh, the answer is to work harder, be more productive, produce more, mm-hmm. especially if you're an entrepreneur or if you're trying to climb the corporate ladder, um, we feel like the answer is more focus, more discipline. It might be in some cases, but it's often rest. It's often idleness, leisure. Yeah. The, I, I love this. Uh, there's this subreddit called shower thoughts. And it's just yeah, sort of the, it. <laughs> the yeah. random thoughts that come to people as they're otherwise occupied. But you need that unstructured default mode time in order for you to creatively problem solve. If you've ever had the experience of that tip of the tongue phenomenon where there's a word or a name that's just on the tip of your tongue yeah. and you can't remember it. And it's only when you take your mind off the problem that it comes to you. That's kind of what we're talking about. Um, a lot of writers when walk. they, when they yeah. encounter writer's block, they'll take a walk, they'll move their body. They'll do anything other than sit down and write. And then the inspiration comes in, and will strike them. So, uh, for focusing and priority, it might seem counterintuitive, intuitive, but, uh, sometimes you need to not focus and expand the container of attention broadly.
1: Yeah. Yep. I agree. Um, well, cool. What else? What else, Steve, is on your uh, well, on your mind in terms of enhancing focus these days?
0: The only other sort of spin I wanted to take on this was, you know, we, we're talking about specific focus for specific tasks. Um, but I also like a general life focus. We've talked about like living life purposefully mm-hmm. and with intention before. So I think it's apropos to bring that into this conversation. Um, it's what I help a lot of my clients with, right? People who feel like they've done life right, but they feel dissatisfied. Um, you know, maybe they have made a lot of money, but they feel like there's not not a lot of purpose in their life. So it's, um, a process of both zooming out and then zooming in on what matters most. Mm -hmm. And there's lots of fun frameworks to help with that, but it's, it's less about a goal and more about a trajectory. So I may have said this on the show before, but like if you just decide to wander west, you have a trajectory. Like my intention is to go west, but you never accomplish west, right? You, you never check mm-hmm. west off the box um, or check that box off the list. It's, it's an intended trajectory. So I find that for a lot of us, we want a fulfilling life. We want a life filled with purpose and aliveness and love and peace of mind, connection, um, but we're too focused on the minutiae. So yeah, it can be helpful to zoom out and look at the bigger picture before we start heading in a particular tra- trajectory.
1: And to pick up on our symphony analogy from weeks ago, mm-hmm. like if your life is like this beautiful score, uh, their music you're creating, um, there, there needs to be spaces in between the notes too, or it's absolute chaos and doesn't sound good. Right. Mm-hmm. And, uh, yeah, and you know, I love, I love the zooming out and the looking at the big picture, because like we were talking about at the beginning of what happens if you spend two hours a day over the course of many years, just mindlessly scrolling, finding yourself scrolling through things that afterwards you're like, why did I do that? Um, what if you spent two minutes a day actively, um, pursuing something that is really in line with your hopes and dreams. Mm -hmm. What happens to that over years? Because we, we grossly overestimate what we can accomplish in a day, but grossly underestimate what we can accomplish in a year. Right. Um, And we are, we become what we repeatedly do.
0: So there's a quote here by Earl Nightingale that says success is the progressive realization of a worthy ideal.
1: I love that. Um,
0: So, and I just want to like chop that up because there's a lot of things that we think about when we think of success. It's very culturally influenced and informed, but progressive realization, that's, the, that's yeah. the repeatedly do part, right? Progressive, just mm-hmm. eat the elephant one bite at a time of a worthy ideal. And that's what what's worthy is relative, relative to your values, relative to mm-hmm. um, where you're at in your life. Um, and then another quote that I really like about this topic from the Stoic philosopher Seneca, if one does not know... To which port one is sailing, no wind is favorable. So unless your intention is just to sail and then it doesn't matter what wind you have. Mm-hmm. But if um, you want to sail for a, to a particular end, then you do have to have a sense for where you want to head generally. That doesn't mean you're going to get there in a straight line. Sometimes the wind shifts. And so you, ha- you orient by the stars or GPS or whatever. You have structure around that to help orient you back to your values or back to the thing that's most yeah, effective. Yeah, your
1: or, north star. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Mm-hmm. I like that.
0: Yeah. There's a couple of different frameworks I like to help people make sense of this. One is the Japanese principle of Ikigai. So that's the philosophical term that breaks iki meaning alive and guy meaning worth. So like a, a life worth living or mm-hmm. what makes alive feel worth it makes being alive feel worth it. Um, so if you could just Google this, there's, there's plenty of, uh, of images out there that describe it, but it's a series of Venn diagrams, these overlapping circles, four circles, including what you love, what the world needs, what you're
1: good at, and what you can be paid for. It sounds like Jim Collins' hedgehog principle. Yeah, from his from Good to Great book. This I remember was decades you, ago. Yeah, yeah, I remember
0: you talking about that like one of our early episodes, long yeah. time ago.
1: Yeah, it's it's useful. It's been useful to me in the business world and in mentoring early career or people in school on where they want to go with their life. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And, and it shows up in that Ikigai. Mm
0: -hmm. Yeah. So you, you can like the way, at least the way this particular person broke it down, if the overlap between what you love and what the world needs might be your life's mission. And then the overlap between what you love and what you're good at might be your passion. The overlap between what you're good at and what you can get paid for might be your profession. Yeah. Um, but where these all overlap in the center is is if you can do this, right? If you can get this to align in your life, that's ikiga. That's a life worth living. If you can do what you love, you also happen to be good at it. The world happens to need it and it happens to be valuable enough that people will pay for it. That's how, as people say, you'll uh, um, never work a day in your life, but uh, work every day of your life.
1: What if you don't figure that out until you're like 89 and you can no longer pick up that baseball bat. That was your life's purpose. Sorry. I'm just poking at the icky guy here. Well,
0: The second best time to plant a tree is now. Okay. Even if you can't, yeah. Sure. <laughs> yeah, no, it's, there are a lot of things that can make a life worthwhile, you know? Um, so I don't know. Assuming yeah. You, I...
1: And I, I use that kind of superficial example. Cause there are perils and pitfalls of, of, uh, like hanging our hat, uh, too much on things that um, are really subject to impermanence and right. like everything is but but uh, I guess my point is this is a a process that unfolds over time and we iterate on is is discovering uncovering rediscovering um, our our purpose our passions our curiosities and yeah and like you said at the beginning you know there you may have many things that light you up
0: Right, I like that. I like that flexible, general approach to life. And I'm a, I am used to be all about—maybe not all about—is correct. I used to be very fascinated by this notion of optimization, mm-hmm. uh, human optimization. that lots of podcasts out there that will tell you how to optimize your time. And there are these funny parody videos that yeah. parody, like the the awakened bro who has this particular morning routine, and he makes this much money by this time, and he's got this mm-hmm. coffee enema and this cold plunge and whatever. Yeah. I think that it's appropriate to mock some of yeah. those things. Um, because you don't want to get too caught up in an optimization. Uh, life is a journey to be fairly broad and, uh, maybe a little cliche and perhaps the purpose of it is just to journey.
1: Yeah. Well, that may be a good place to wind down. Yeah. Yeah. Thank you, Steve. Thank this you. Is a good reminder of many things for me. Indeed. Psychedelic Therapy
0: Frontiers is brought to you by Numinous, a mental wellness company committed to tackling the global mental health crisis by delivering best-in-class psychedelic-assisted therapies, contributing to the body of primary and clinical psychedelic research, and fostering healing through community connection and social responsibility. You can learn more about Numinous at Numinous.com. That's n-u-m-i-n-u-s.com. If you enjoyed the show today and you want to support us, here's how you do it rate and review the show on platforms like apple Podcasts and spotify subscribe to the numinous youtube channel like the videos and share it share the show or clips of the show with someone that you think will enjoy it hey listeners it's steve thayer here letting you know that numinous offers unique training opportunities for mental health practitioners to develop their skills and expertise in offering psychedelic assisted therapy to clients These courses are carefully crafted by Numinous professionals like myself, Reed, Joe, and others, and offer a variety of high-quality learning experiences. So if you would like to learn more about these trainings, you can find the link in the show notes below, or you can visit Numinous.com forward slash training. That's Numinous.com forward slash training. The content of this podcast does not constitute medical advice or mental health treatment. Consult with a medical or mental health professional if you believe you are in need of mental health treatment.